Matthew chapter 24. Some, some important things. And I think this is because, you know, now, you know, Jesus has been in the temple and he's been teaching the, the crowd there. He's been dealing with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And, and now he leaves the temple and he begins this conversation with the disciples that is on a whole other level. And he begins to real, reveal the things of the future. And I think the mistake that we often can make when we're studying prophecy is that we start to look at the, the what-ifs and if this happens and is this person that person, or, and we try and connect the dots. I think that's good to a certain extent. I think it's, it's healthy for us to, to look at the, the players on the map and go, does this apply to the prophecy? But I think the mistake we make is that we cease to give it personal application to us. And so as we get into Matthew chapter 24 today, again, we're going to do a lot of that. We're going to talk about some of the events that have taken place in the world. But understand that I believe there's great application to our lives individually today. So not just the what if, years down the road, weeks down the road, whatever, what it means on a global level, but that we're looking for the way to apply this personally to ourselves today, right? I think when it comes to prophecy, it is the greatest thing that sets the Lord apart from every other teacher, every other religion, every other group in the world. Though you can find commonalities where you can go, oh, well, this group and that group and these other groups, they all talk about loving one another and being kind. Well, that's true. But if you want to talk about what separates them, it's that we serve a God that knows the beginning from the end. And he says that clearly in Isaiah chapter 46, when he's comparing, he's like, look at other gods, I'm paraphrasing, but look at everyone else. Is there anyone like me? I know the end from the beginning. That's his proof to us, to the world. There is none like me. And so as we look into prophecy, it should be a great encouragement to us. Not just that we can look at stuff in the future and go, wow, this does seem like the seasons and the times that we're living in. But we can look on those things that have been fulfilled and go, those were perfectly fulfilled. No other group, no other religion in the world even dares to tell the future or to prophesy. And the Lord does it with such incredible, perfect accuracy. I love it. Again, he declares the end from the beginning. And it is the evidence that we can trust in him at all times. So, in Matthew 24, Jesus is going to speak on the end times. And the end times, you know, we usually think of the end times being simply that the last seven years of mankind, or the last age of man might be another way to say it, uh, the, tr the great tribulation. But really the idea of the end times is the time and the seasons that lead up to the tribulation as well. It's kind of the beginning of the end, the middle of the end, and the end of the end, right? <laughs> it's, it's all together. So let's pray, and we'll get into this very deep chapter. God, thank you that you know all things. Nothing catches you by surprise. It is all laid out before you like a scroll. And we can trust you, we can trust your word, and we can take comfort in knowing that you know all and have our best in mind. As we get into your word today, we pray that you would teach us, 
and that you would have your way in us individually, and you'd show us how these things apply to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 24. It says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said, Do you not see all these things? Surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another. It shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us what these thing, or when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilence, earthquakes in various places. And all these things are the beginnings of sorrows. And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because of the lawlessness, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, Jesus departs the temple, and I think it's interesting that Matthew makes a special note that he went out of the temple and he departed. And there's a finality about the way that, that Matthew delivers that. This is the last time Jesus goes or departs from the temple. His time teaching there, his time teaching the crowd, dealing with the Pharisees, done. Now Jesus is on a direct course toward the cross. But in that, he's also giving this information. And again, the disciples, I just can't help but picture myself among them, you know. They're just, they're knuckleheads. And they're just like, okay, great, we're leaving, let's go. And as the, on, their, on their way out, they kind of look at the beauty of the temple. And they're like, wow, Jesus, isn't this cool? Look at how great this temple is. And it was. I, and I think we have trouble picturing or understanding what the temple must have been like in that day. Um, first of all, this is not the first temple. This is not the temple of Solomon. It was destroyed. This is the second temple. Uh, it was known as Herod's temple, and it was started in about 400 BC. Uh, you can read about it in the book of Ezra. They talk about the rebuilding of the temple at the start of it there, and, and, but it never reached its completion until Herod decided that he would try and get favor from the Jewish people and try and get in good with them by rebuilding the temple. So he actually expanded it, and he made it into something beautiful. As evil and horrible as Herod was, it did not change the beauty of the temple. They used pure white marble for the main building. And on top of that, on the roof, they put sheets of solid gold. And then on a sunny day, from anywhere in the city that you could see the temple, it seemed to glow. Josephus talked about it, that it was breathtaking. That just to, just to see it, it seemed to glow with a holiness, right? And it was one of the wonders of the ancient world back then. 
The, the walls around it and w- even within it were these massive stones, some of them 20 feet long and 16 feet wide, 10 to 12 feet thick. Massive, huge stones. And so when we t- kind of take all that in, then it gives a lot more impact to what Jesus tells them. Not one stone will be left on another. He's not talking about little rock walls like we have out here that we think of massive stones that took a huge amount of manpower simply to move them, much less get them into place. And Jesus says, all this is going to come down. Not one stone on another. Now, the disciples take that seriously. Uh, Again, maybe they thought it was metaphorical. Maybe they thought they were talking, Jesus was talking about the temple worship and the the work of the priests, because we've already seen Jesus kind of show that that's coming to an end. But either way, they take him seriously. Anybody else would think Jesus is crazy. In fact, this will be one of the accusations they bring against Jesus during his his trial, is they say, this man wanted to destroy the temple and said he'd raise it again in, in three days, right? Misquoting Jesus completely, but again, the idea that they just thought this was insane, the idea. People would, would believe it's absolutely impossible. What in the world would motivate somebody to destroy the temple and all of its walls with these massive stones? Well, in 70 AD, Roman had enough of putting up with the Jewish nation, and they leveled Jerusalem, completely leveled it. They left the Antonio's Tower and the temple, and their plan supposedly was to leave the temple. But the last of the rebels gathered in the temple as a, used it as a stronghold. And uh, a fight broke out. A fire got started. And the fire was hot enough that it melted all of the gold on the roof, which came down and inside the walls into every crack and crevice. And Rome was highly motivated to get that gold out. And not one stone was left on another. Exactly like Jesus said. Now, I think, again, we can look at it, wow, that's cool, that's really neat. But understand, for the disciples, this was all future. They're like, well, okay, if you say so. For us, we can look back at that and go, the accuracy of that prophecy being fulfilled should tell us how accurately the ones that will still be fulfilled will be, right? Because the things that he goes on to talk about, again, are intense. Many of them were impossible until this century that we live in now. The disciples, when they asked the questions of Jesus, they probably meant it as really one question. And I think that's something for us to realize, is that what they were saying, or what they thought they were saying, or asking, is different than what we usually hear on our side of things, right? So they, they thought they were asking one question. It turns out it was more like three. They asked, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the end of the age? Now, they were thinking that all of these things would be within their lifetime, right? This was the short term. Jesus is, is getting ready to do some stuff here. And that's what they thought he was referring to. And so when they say, what is the sign of your coming? Well, we hear that. And of course, we think of Jesus returning. What's the sign of Jesus' return to the earth to gather the church and to bring all things to to finality? Well, that's not what the disciples thought at at all. That's not what they were asking. They were asking, when are you going to come into power? 
What will be the sign that you are going to start your earthly kingdom here? And they're tying this all together probably, right? So they're going, okay, the, the, the temple being destroyed, that's the end of all things. And again, that's not the end of the world they're talking about or thinking of. It's the end of what we understand. The, the Jewish covenant. And, and again, Jesus has already let them know, these things are going to be completed. I'm bringing a new covenant, the New Testament. And so that's what they're referring to. The end of all things, or, or uh, the end of the age. But no matter what their question really was, or what they thought they were asking, uh, and you could probably sum it up by, when the temple's destroyed, and there's the end of the temple worship, and, and all of those, uh, when will your earthly rule start? That's kind of what they were probably going for. Uh, but Jesus' answer is way beyond that. <laughs> so whatever they thought the answer was going to be, uh, Jesus gives them the reality of it. And it spans thousands of years. <coughs> it's really going to be the entirety of the whole age of mankind. And we'll see that through the rest of chapter 24. Again, we're only going halfway through. Um, but he's going to describe what the end times look like. Not only the great tribulation, but the time leading up to that. And, uh, and it's important to know, I'm going to reference it quite a few times this week and next week when we finish the rest of the chapter, Matthew chapter 24 and Revelation chapter 6 go together. And that, that gives us a timing, and it shows us uh, how things fit. Uh, one of the mistakes that people make in looking at Matthew chapter 24 is that they think of it as a linear description. In other words, what Jesus mentions first happens first, and the next is what happens next, and then finally when he gets to the end of the chapter, that's what happens at the end. He's not describing things in a uh, chronological order. And that's important to know. Revelation gives us the chronological order. Book of Revelation, though people will slice and dice it up and try and move chapters around, it's chronological. Revelation is given from two perspectives, one from heaven and one from earth. But there's always the progression from the beginning to the end. Jesus is going to describe the end times four different times here in chapter 24. And with each description, he's going to focus on a different topic. But it's important to know that those topics are not in a chronological order, necessarily. So, uh, what we just read, the, description, the first description, uh, verses 4 through 14, are the seasons leading up to the tribulation. Right? This is what man's behavior is going to be like worldwide. This is how we're treating one another, what our focus is, what we're about. Uh, verses 15 through 25, Jesus is going to describe the end times for the second time. This time focusing on the events within the tribulation itself that apply to Israel. And that section is actually pointing to Revelations chapters 12 and 13. Third trip through or third description of the end times are verses 26 through 35. And we'll go through all this again. Uh, Jesus speaks of the great sign in heaven, which is him returning for the church. And every eye will see it. Everyone will be aware of it. 
And then finally, verses 36 through 41, he's going to talk about the rapture of the church. And then at, what comes after that into chapter 25 are the parables and teachings concerning how we respond to this in information. How are we to be getting ready for our master's return? The parables uh, that he lays out and the instruction for us goes from verses 42 through 51 and then into chapter 25. Um, again, back to verses 4 through 14 that we just read. This is leading up to the tribulation, what it'll look like. And he describes it's going to be a time of false teachers and false messiahs. There's going to be a time in verse 6 of wars, rumors of wars. And right now we're looking at what's going on in Russia and going, for me anyhow, and maybe I've just been completely ignorant, where did this come from? And, and looking at some of the history, like what is this all about? And, and it is kind of one of those things you go, okay, is this going to lead into something more? Is this something bigger? Is this the fulfillment of prophecy? Where does all this fit in? Is this just one more war and rumor of war? And Well, it's not a rumor. It's, going, it's actually happening. But it seems like if you do a little bit of research and listen to the news when it's not just talking about all the political nonsense, there's always wars and rumors of wars, and it's just been going like that for so long that almost we don't hear it now. I mean, honestly, when they first started talking about Russia and, and doing their thing, it was kind of like, yeah, I don't know about that. Well, now it's happening. Now, again, whatever we're talking about, whether it's wars, rumors of wars, false teachers, false messiahs, pestilence, all these things, Jesus gives us the reassurance of saying, see that you are not troubled. For all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Again, I can get kind of caught up in it. I start looking at things and go, whoa, whoa, is, is, does this mean this or that or these other things? And how intense is this? And how bad is this going to get? And Jesus is like, don't be troubled by it. And that doesn't mean don't care about it. He's not saying blow it off or minimize it. He's just saying, don't lose sleep over it. Don't let it be a stress to you. Don't let it distract you from what's actually important, right? In verse 8, he says, these are the beginning of sorrows. I think this is the best description of how Bible prophecy works and how we are nearing those end times, if not in them. He describes the, the beginning of sorrows. Sorrows literally means birth pains. It's a woman in labor. And so while we can look at it and go, well, these things have always been happening, right? There's always been wars. There's always been pestilence. There's always been hunger. These aren't new things. No, they're not new. But as we get closer to the end, we're going to find that they're happening with greater frequency, like labor pains, and greater intensity. That that's how it goes, right? And so, no, these aren't new things, but they are growing in frequency and intensity. And it's interesting. Um, you can do a pretty quick search on the U.S. Geological Society and look back over the last 50 years, and there is an obviously growing trend of earthquakes in, in, in frequency and intensity. Yep. That they just continue to get more and more not necessarily every year, but overall you see it growing, right? It could also be, or it is also referring to, not necessarily that everything happens with greater fre in 
greater frequency, but greater intensity. And so, for example, we've only had one worldwide pandemic. But one's enough, right? It's, that's, the word pestilence actually means disease, or it doesn't just mean like locusts. It's that kind of thing. And we've only had one, so not great, freq- great frequency of it, but uh, great intensity of it. Again, a lot of these things were seen as impossible. How can a whole planet, how could all of mankind be affected by false teachers and false messiahs? Who would give them airtime? Who would give them a place, give them a stage to preach from, to teach their false doctrine? A little thing we call the internet. It didn't exist that long, and I feel very old. I remember when the internet, internet was created, right? And I thought, that's never going to take off. <laughs> this is why I don't invest in things, because I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> and now anybody can put anything they want out there, and they receive a huge following. Jesus in another place talked about at the end times that people will heap up teachers to themselves. This is it. This is mankind. Well, this is what I think. Let me see if I can find other people that say the same thing on the internet. Absolutely. You could come up with any crazy flat earth, alien, whatever, and you will find a whole group. They've been around for a long time, just waiting for you. And I also believe not only social media, internet, all those things, I believe they they can be used very powerfully and Many people do, but they are a place that evil is spread like a disease. I also think it is a result, or the result of it is causing the love of many to grow cold. And never, ever before has there been so much division, and not just in the United States. It's, it's branched out. Again, thanks to the internet, worldwide, everybody's got something to complain about, and everybody's got this us and them mentality. There's us who are right, and there's them who are wrong. And you can just pick whatever category you want, but it's becoming more and more divided, more and more heated. And we love us, but we hate them. We don't just disagree with them. We don't have a, a communication with them. We hate them. That is the love of many growing cold. And it will continue to increase. Now, again, keep in mind, just this beginning, verses 4 through 14, what Jesus is describing here, as, as horrible as it is, it's the calm before the storm. This is the lead up to the tribulation. This isn't the tribulation itself. This is, hey, this is before it gets bad. This is how bad it's going to be, right? Now, why does he tell us this? And I think this is true with all Bible prophecy, especially concerning the end times and his return. No one will know the day of the hour. Jesus is going to talk about that when, next week when we get into uh, the rest of the chapter. We won't know. And I can guarantee you, anybody that writes a book that says they know that Jesus is coming back on this date, it won't be that day, right? I remember when the book came out, I'm going to mess up the title. There's something like 2,000 reasons Jesus will return in the year 2000. People bought that book like crazy, right? 
And then, of course, the Lord did not come back. He wrote a second book of why Jesus, uh, 2001 reasons Jesus would come back in 2001. And guess what? Tons of people bought that book, right? We will not know the day or the hour. Anybody that starts looking at the blood moon and the tides and this and the alignment of the planets and goes, it's going to be this day. No, it won't. However, he tells us these things that we might know the days and the seasons. What the seasons and the times will look like. So not the individual day. I don't even think the week or the month. But when we can look around and go, what Jesus is describing here sounds just like the world we're living in. And it does. Verse 14, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, the spreading of the gospel is a key factor, of course, for the church. But some will take that verse and say, and use it really kind of in the opposite way of what Jesus is saying. I've heard people say, well, we know that these certain people groups have not been reached with the gospel. Therefore, Jesus cannot come back yet. That's not the idea of what's being said there. Because we know, according to Revelation, that in the end, angels will be preaching the gospel to every tribe, nation, and language in the world. So the gospel will go out to everybody. It's not dependent on us getting the job done. However, it still is our job. But the Lord isn't dependent on us. And as we go on uh, next week, we'll find the danger of anything that would say, my master delays his coming. Oh, since this hasn't happened, since the temple hasn't been rebuilt, since there isn't a one world government, since there isn't all these things, Jesus can't return yet. Has horrible repercussions for our personal walk. We need to be those that are looking up that when we look into these things and go, all right, my job is to preach the everlasting gospel, to give the good news of the kingdom to all before the end comes. And that's what Jesus is saying. Look, this is what you're being commissioned to do, to give out the gospel before the end comes. But it is not dependent on me. I just get to be a part of it. The gospel will go out to every tribe and language. Everyone will hear before the end comes. Now, verse 15. Jesus describes the end times for the second time with a different focus, saying, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and Matthew makes, or Matthew makes a note saying, Whoever reads, let him understand. Jesus goes on in verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on his housetop not go down and take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back for his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as the world has not such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. 
Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. The false Christ, the false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders and deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Now in this second description of the end times that Jesus gives, uh, his focus is on Israel, describing what takes place halfway through. And when we studied through the book of Revelation, we stopped and kind of settled on that point for a little while because it is important. In fact, the tribulation itself, according to the prophecy that's given in Daniel chapter 9, the angel that spoke to Daniel, the main purpose of the tribulation is for the nation Israel. Lots of other things will be happening. Other people will get saved. But it is to fulfill the promises made to Israel in Daniel chapter 9. And again, this, this is pointing to Revelation chapters 12 and 13. And it's a key moment. This is the moment of Israel's salvation. And it's going to happen like that. It's not like a lot of us. We're like, oh, I went to church a few times. I heard the gospel. And I started thinking about it. And I decided to give my life to Jesus. For Israel, it is going to be a singular moment where this veil is lifted and they understand that Jesus has always been the Messiah. And to describe what takes place there a little bit, Jesus talks about the abomination which causes desolation. And again, that's from Daniel chapter 9. Um, the first half, the first three and a half years of the tribulation are going to be chaos. But out of that chaos is going to rise the worst false messiah ever. As Jesus is warning about false teachers, false messiahs, the king of them all will be the Antichrist. And for the first three and a half years, people are going to love this guy. He's going to seem like literally the savior of the world. He's going to bring everybody together, one world economy. He's going to create a, a nation that is a worldwide nation. And part of that is he's also going to help Israel rebuild the temple. And Israel is going to believe he's the Messiah. They're going to sign or make a covenant with him. Now, at three and a half years, the Antichrist decides that he's going to set up an image, an idol, in the Holy of Holies, in the new temple, and make sacrifice to it. And that's the moment. That is the light bulb moment where all Israel will go, he's a liar. Jesus is the Messiah. And in that same moment, the Antichrist is going to wage war on Israel. It's going to happen so quick. And that's why Jesus is saying, look, when this happens, when you see the abomination which causes desolation standing in the temple, run. Don't go back for anything. Don't go into your house for your clothes. Don't go back for anything. You run. Because it's going to happen so fast. Revelation describes it as a flood flowing from the dragon's mouth to destroy Israel. When they flee, not everyone is going to make it. It's going to be like nothing the world has ever seen before. That this escape from the Antichrist is going to be the most gruesome, devastating thing that has ever been witnessed in humankind. But those who make it, those who do escape, God is going to protect. And, and Scripture tells us that that's going to be in the stone city of Petra. I don't know why. <laughs> I wish I did. I've always wondered. 
that uh, this, this city, I believe it's in Turkey, that this stone, ain't, where is it? Jordan. It's in Jordan. They're going to flee there, and, and God is going to protect them. They're going to be untouchable in that place. How many of them make it? We don't know. All right. So now reset for a third description, starting in verse 26. Verse 26 says, Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is here in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the Son of Man, excuse me, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heavens. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with great with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together as elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This third description is focused on the great sign of the Son of Man in the heavens. Uh, this is when Jesus comes back for the church. And again, people will, will look at this description and go, well, yeah, Jesus has already described the uh, you know, abomination that causes desolation, and this is after that. Again, this is not in a chronological order. And we find the chronological order in the book of Revelation. What Jesus is describing here is Revelation chapter 6. Now, one of the things that's important, again, he's mentioned false teaching, false teachers, false messiahs, people now, the followers of those false teachers, going, look, he's here in the desert. No, he's here in the inner room. Jesus just says, you, nobody's going to miss it. Nobody's going to miss my return. Verse 27 is lightning, comes from the east and flashes to the west. His return will not be missed. The, the reference to the carcass and the birds of prey, uh, it simply means that when you're far off and you see birds of prey circling, you know what that means. And you can see them a long ways off. You don't even have to see the carcass to know it's there. You just know. In other words, it can't be missed. That's Jesus' point. His return will not be missed. In Revelation chapter 1, John says, Behold, he is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him. Every eye. It's not a secret. It's not some thing that he just slips in and like, oh, hey, by the way, Jesus showed up. We've got him back here in the back room. You want to pay some money, you can see him, right? That sounds funny, but people have done that. <laughs> are still doing it. Um, every eye will see him. And this event that he speaks of here in verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is Revelation chapter 6. This is the start point of the tribulation. This is when it all happens. We'll go on, we'll talk more about it as we get into the rest of uh, chapter 24. I think that's one of the things that's killing me a little bit because there's other things that tie into this. But 
I'm going to be patient and we'll wait. But Jesus describes it that his, the day of his return is a day like any other day. It's, it's not a day of chaos. It's not a day where people are running in fear and, and, and the world is falling apart. It's a day like any other day. That's only going to happen at the beginning. The day the tribulation begins is a day like any other day, and after that, there'll never be a normal day again. Again, the timing's important because it, it, I think it changes the way we walk. It changes the way we serve him. It, again, in Revelation chapter 6, we see the breaking of the seven seals. And with each break of each seal, something takes place. Uh, some of them are events that will happen on earth, but they don't happen right away necessarily. It's just like they begin, like wars and, and famine and those things. And, but when the sixth seal is broken, there's an immediate effect on earth. The sun is darkened, the moon is darkened, stars fall from their place, all of these things. And this is the sign of the Son of Man appearing in heaven. Revelation talks about those whether rich or poor or slave or free, are hiding themselves in the rocks, saying, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and his lamb. That is the sign of the Son of Man. They are mourning because they have run from him for so long. And then Jesus also puts this right together with the rapture of the church, that he is sending out his angels in verse 31. He will send out his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, to me, I always find that this is like a paradox, right? Double-edged sword, because on one side, I read that, and I'm comforted. I'm kind of excited about it. The idea that the Lord could come for us at any moment, and that we should be ready, and we should be living a life that should he show up today, that we'd be like, Lord, look. Look what I was able to do today for you, you know? And that's the kind of life we want. And the idea that he could return that quickly is exciting. We're like, Lord, yeah, that all things would kind of come to an end and this world of sin and war and chaos would all be finally dealt with. But the other side of that is the road that it's going to take to get us there. And it's heartbreaking that it is war and it is pestilence and it is world-shaking events, literally world-shaking events. And so much of mankind will continue to reject even in the face of their own destruction. But some will be saved. It's heartbreaking. But no matter what we're talking about, whether it's prophecy, and I guess this is the point that I come to where it's like, okay, how does this all apply to us? We can look at it again. Oh, this is interesting and these things and how they all fit together. That's great. But how does it all apply to us? Because we serve the God, the only God, that knows the beginning from the end. And though we can look at it with the big things like this and go, yeah, he was right about the temple and he was right about all the prophecies about Jesus and, and all those things are true. I think the application comes when we go, not only is he in, in control of all of those worldwide things, he's also in control of all of my personal things. So when my world's falling apart, though everyone else seems fine, when my world is shaken and everybody else seems fine, and I don't know what to do with the weight that's on my shoulders and the fear that I have, I can know that he still declares the beginning from the end. 
He knows every detail. Nothing escapes his gaze. He is personally involved in my life and my heartbreak. And I can look at this and go, Lord, you are so precise in the way you bring things about for good. Even horrible things like war and famine and loss and tragedy, you bring it out in the end for your good. You can do the same thing. You are doing the same thing in me. Right? Again, I think it's great to study prophecy. I love to study it. And, I, and I, it motivates me to share the good news of Jesus Christ more and more before the end. But I take great peace in continually coming back to, God, you know it all. You know it all. Thank you that I get to be a part of it, that I get to be along for the ride, that I can trust you, and I can take comfort in your, your character. Help us to be those that are giving out the good news, occupying this world until he comes, and looking up, waiting for his return. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are in control of the big things like wars, famine, but you're also in control of the little things in my life and in our life. God, that we can lay those at your feet and we can know that you have a good plan and a good outcome in mind and that you seek our good in all things. God, may we just patiently rest in you, lay down our fears and our cares and our worries and be usable by you today in this world. We thank you for loving us. Thank you for being patient with us. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.